one body has the power to disrupt or to sort of send this mob into a frenzy, Mm -hmm. depending on whether or not the body chooses to remain still or moves again. I hesitate to say that it's beautiful because it's not, it's so ugly, but the public also has to sort of bestow that power upon her as well. You're listening to the Brightwall Darkroom podcast, where we belly up with critics, artists, and our magazine's contributors to speak from the heart about film. I'm Veronica Fitzpatrick. And I'm Chad Perman. Chad, how's it going? Pretty good. So far, so good. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, I'm feeling lucky to not be in smoggy New York. Can I say that? I feel like that's mean, but... (laughs) To who? Well, specifically to Spencer and Eli, oh. but um, I'll, all I'm seeing are these like Sicario style images oh. of like the skyline that are totally like scary. And I am sort of curious what is best to do aside from stay inside and have been mostly finding seemingly like hasty infographics, which don't feel totally mm. like reliable either. So, mm-hmm. but I know. Are you done with teaching now? Is that wrapped up for the year? <laughs> yeah, you're like, why do you have all this time to think yeah. about the air quality in New York City? <laughs> like, you're doing well all day? Okay, all right. <laughs> I am. I'm done with teaching. I was nursing a little bit of a hangover this morning because mm. I was enjoying some tiki beverages last night. Yeah. Celebration so. beverages? or No, it, they mm. were like grieving beverages mm. i guess oh. yeah some old co-workers took my boyfriend out ah. and, and me apparently so yeah. Y- yeah we were just kind of drinking things that came in like the hourglass tumblers and mm-hmm. not um enough food i'm glad that you did the the hand motions yes. yeah for, for those <laughs> listening at home we I'm eventually doing. by year five we're looking to get into the video <laughs> podcast so. i'm doing like a wooga silhouette <laughs> yeah well, can you tell me the name of one of the drinks? Because I always like those drinks. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I Well, I started with a frozen. This is actually a great way to do this segment. I yeah. started with a frozen pina colada, which was topped with whipped cream, which was interesting. Oh, of course. For a little sugar. Yeah. It's kind of um, like a McDonald's <laughs> style cloud of ready whip at the top. Um, and then a um, a zombie, two zombies. I don't know what a zombie is besides the Walking Dead style. We'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we're going to start doing a segment where we give little drinks uh, to make. So we will be putting a zombies mix on there. Great. Yeah. Great. <laughs> and uh, and the summer is upon us, right? It sure is. And we yeah. have our first theme of the summer. We do. Normally, I know that we talk about the issue without the guest talking. But in this case, for the first time that I'm aware of, the person who is the guest on the show is also the person who curated and guest edited the entire issue. So I thought that we would have her do a little bit of the why are we doing this theme and what's this issue kind of about. Sorry to put her on the spot. Oh no. I will also give an introduction, but I'll circle back to the introduction after you tell us about the issue. So really quick with no context, please welcome Spencer Williams. Oh my goodness. Like a few months ago, Spencer came to me and said something like, hey Chad, I was thinking it'd be great to do a whole issue on trans cinema. And I said, hey, Spencer, that sounds great. From that little seedling, an issue has has sprung and uh, just came out today, Uh, or at least the first essay. We also wanted to talk a little bit really briefly about Spencer's letter to the editor, or letter from the editor, because it was really good. But yeah, just kind of say a little bit about where you got the idea to to do the issue, kind of what your thoughts were about, because it's not a traditional, like we're not talking about, which we make very clear from the start, it's not like a all about boys don't cry or something like that. Um, it's not traditional trans cinema stuff. So you wanted to define it differently, and I thought it was, well, it was a cool way to go because we really got a great issue. So yeah, what what was the inspiration? I was just bored. <laughs> I don't know, because like everything for trans people is like going so, it's just fine right now. And there's no <laughs> problems and everyone is happy and it's the time of our lives. Well, I guess two points or two catalysts, if you will. The first one was that I totally flubbed my Sundance coverage and I needed like a backup oh, I forgot about redeeming that. plan yeah, immediately. Probation. I was like, 
we need to like edit over <laughs> sort of this error that I did. And so I'm going to just wipe the memory of, of what that was with some new thing. The other yeah. thing was Michael Knowles came to, are we familiar with Michael Knowles? He's like a Republican not- pundit. His whole deal, oh. he went viral like back in, I want to say February or March. Because his whole deal was like, oh, transgenderism needs to be, like, eradicated. That was sort of his, like, Mm. tagline or whatever. And that went viral. And then he, like, visited the school that I'm at. He visited my institution, SUNY Buffalo, to, like, give a talk. Because one of the student clubs on campus was like, this is a good use of our funding. And our tax dollars. (laughs) And so he came to speak. And it was, like, a very, obviously, like, unintelligible I don't know. Am I allowed to cuss on here? It was a shitstorm. It was a shitstorm. And there was like a huge protest, which was great. I'm so online as an individual. And so my timeline is just inundated with like transphobic tweets or like people retweeting the transphobic tweet to then like dunk on the tweet. But then Mm -hmm. in the process, Mm -hmm. I have to still see the tweet. Mm -hmm. And so I, I mean, I love a good dunk as the next person does. But I was just sort of sitting in my fifis, my feelings <laughs> about all of this sort of like cultural and social noise that seemed to be happening all at once from like every sort of direction. And I was like, I wonder if there's a way to let the monster speak, so to, so to speak, mm. let the trans person sort of have a say sort of outside the context of all of this mm. noise that isn't coming from a place of like defense or a place of like, I have to oh, now give my piece as to sort of why I should be treated like a human being in any in any context. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that doing an issue on trans cinema would be a nice way to not only have an opportunity to pay trans writers during this sort of time period, mm-hmm. but then also, you know, give them a platform to write about the things that bring them joy in a sense, mm-hmm. or to talk about moments of levity versus you know, like, how are you feeling right now while, you know, all of these British people want you dead, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, like, how do you feel right now that, like, Rhonda Santos is, like, about to feed you to a crocodile? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think it was sort of, I wanted an opportunity or, like, a reprieve from sort of having to respond to mm. all of the worldliness of, of, I guess, the trans, quote-unquote, discourse, and to just sort of, you know we can still have fun. Like yeah. we and still have interests and hobbies. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think that was sort of what I was feeling. I was tired of texting all of my trans friends about like things that we were afraid of. <laughs> mm. I'd forgotten about the first, uh, the blown Sundance coverage. So thank you for reminding me. <laughs> but the second thing I, I didn't, I'd had no idea that was the, some of the impetus behind it. That's actually makes me much uh, happier than I already was with the issue. Cause that, that's a great, I think a great idea. In terms of, you know, trying to platform something and do it in a different way. And, you know, you set the tone with your letter from the editor and talk about it. But you had that line in there near the end about, you know, that you want it to be about all of the, well, I should actually just pull it up. Hold on. Still amidst this grind, never ceasing chaos, this issue seeks to mine the complicated joy of trans existence, balancing both the dark corners of our lives with many brilliant cracks of light and doing so fearlessly and effortlessly. I thought that was a great, a great way to kind of frame what the issue is, um, and just really curated it really well. Um, I think we have eight, nine pieces, all, all from trans writers that Spencer, I think, personally reached out. Yeah, I didn't reach out to him. You did it all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was trying to think of. Yeah. Oh, I gave you one suggestion. There's like submittable poll as well. Yes, there was there was the submittable stuff. But thanks thanks to my suggestion, we did get a my cousin Vinny essay on the way. So. I am very curious how that's going to going to work, but we'll see. <laughs> anyway, so yes, thank you for all your work this month. And of course, we want to have you as a guest on the podcast. And so welcome. And I'm going to reverse back into the intro really quick. Spencer Williams is a trans writer from Chula Vista, California. She's the author of the forthcoming poetry collection Trans from Four Way Books, due in 2024, and is currently a PhD student in poetics at Oh, crap. Sorry, guys. I don't know how to say it, and I know Spencer just said it. Is it SUNY, or do I say SUNY? Yeah. Okay. SUNY, or that. What, what do the cool people say? SUNY. Okay. And is currently a PhD student in poetics at SUNY Buffalo. She's a contributing editor to Bright Wall Dark Room, and as we previously mentioned, uh, has put together this month's issue on trans cinema. Welcome to the show, Spencer. 
Thank you for having me. I should have just had you spell it out for fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can really just get me to do anything. I don't know. I don't know anything on the East Coast. The cool all... people are spelling that. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. S-U-N-Y Buffalo. <laughs> as they say on the East Coast. Spencer, it's so cool to have you with us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Also helped us pick out the films today, too. Yeah. To be here in my apartment. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So we have a double header today, along with curating the trans cinema issue of the magazine. Spencer has curated a pair of films for us to chat about. So we have a 2015 short film, American Reflex, directed by Ali Coates and released on YouTube. And the documentary featured No Ordinary Man, directed by Ashling Chinyi and Chase Joint from 2020, which appears in the Mask collection currently streaming on Criterion Channel. So maybe we can start with American Reflex, the short film, which stars artist Signe Pierce. In the film, the camera follows Pierce walking on Ocean Boulevard in Myrtle Beach and transforms a two-hour live reality performance. I'm doing air quotes because that's how I've seen it sort of described by both Pierce and Coates into a 14-minute film where curiosity and interest about Pierce's identity evolves or devolves into this really violent confrontation with the crowd throughout which Pierce um, resists her unmasking. So I feel like I could talk about this film for like the entire hour, but why did you suggest this one? And what are your impressions? What does it mean to you? So I first encountered this film at a screening in New York City at MoMA with my friend Kelly Gallagher. It was part Mm -hmm. of a like film series and this was just one of the films in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a film that just stuck with me. I saw it a few years ago and I just haven't been able to sort of stop thinking about it. It's like a horror film. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's a totally. horror film. It's one of those short films that is so, it, it just makes me feel like I need to take a shower. But then also I'm fascinated by sort of the underlying kind of like transphobia that like is produced by the simple act of walking through a space. Yeah. yeah. The actress at the center is, is a cis woman. Mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting how like the mere act of covering or masking one's sort of face like manifests all of these like really harsh, violent, mm-hmm. <laughs> like public mm-hmm. reactions because, I mean, this woman is very tall um, <laughs> and very tall, very blonde, very giving... Uh, Circa 2009 Lady Gaga, mm-hmm. which is also, I guess, an interesting touch point because and when Lady Gaga first appeared, there was all of this discussion about her genitals, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's something just, I don't know, something about not being able to readily identify a person like from head to toe is somehow mm-hmm. figuring for for yeah. the, the, the people of Myrtle Beach. Um I mean, the mask that she's wearing is so, is like reflective. It's like this glass Mm -hmm. thing. And so it's in a way, I don't know. It's like interesting that it's obviously reflecting all of the violence that is being inflicted upon sort of this woman. And I think Mm -hmm. her silence also produces this really jarring, amplified violence at the same time where to maintain like composure in in this sort of setting is so astounding to Mm -hmm. me. And yet it, it happens and there are, Obviously, moments where people are, like, breaking kind of, like, the social boundary and, like, putting their hands on her and doing mm-hmm. just, like, crazy shit that, Awful I stuff, guess, yeah. we would sort of see maybe in, like, a kind of, like, a MoMA kind of performance art where, like, the artist is, like, inviting people to do it. Mm-hmm. But in this sense, it's just, again, we have just a woman walking downtown with a camera following her, and that is creating, like, a weird sphere or, like, zone of contact <laughs> that... Mm-hmm is uninvited and yet it's such a mundane act it's not as Mm -hmm. if she's not sort of wearing a sign that says you know react to me or whatnot Mm -hmm. i think what the violence is sort of responding to is this assumption that because she sort of looks how she looks um she's like tall uh she sort of has like a flatter chest that she is trans. And that's, I think, something that's sort of unspoken in, mm-hmm. in the film, but is also there so that it's there on the surface. Well, it's, it's very, very spoken by every almost everyone they walk by, it, or, right? Yeah, it's sort of not the, in, it, I guess, in my reading of kind of the backstory, like it was never sort of the intention to sort of make mm-hmm. a commentary about it, mm-hmm. but then it sort of becomes a commentary about it. Yeah. In a way that just feels like it, 
it, like to, it becomes sort of a trans film or a trans text mm-hmm. just by virtue of how people are so readily like willing to sort of abandon all like social um, boundaries and, and, very and, quickly, and yeah. codes that, you know, it, it, it feels very even, I mean, I think this film came out in 2015, but mm-hmm. I think even in 2023, there's uh, like a residue that continues or it feels like there's, such a cultural continuation of the kind of violence that is experienced in the film. Mm -hmm. And it also brings up really complicated questions of gender um, embodiment and notions of passing and unpassing in ways that, again, I don't think it sort of intentionally tried to do, but ultimately in sort of the final product produced regardless. Mm -hmm. And I think it's such a true snapshot of kind of like this senseless <laughs> violence that is sort of inflicted upon people that are, that might not sort of fit neatly into sort of a kind of a binary sort of box physically. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think about today, sort of all of these instances that we're seeing now of like cis people being like accosted in bathrooms because mm-hmm. someone assumes that they are trans based on like physical appearance, despite them being very much cis. Mm-hmm. Um, and how I think right-wing sort of anxiety of, about transness has produced this side effect of, or like this almost like friendly fire, <laughs> where like cis people are now in a weird kind of strange way are are experiencing transphobia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's just, it, there's just a lot to think about. Yeah, for a 10 minute, 14 minute uh, short film, there's a lot to unpack. I'm so glad that you suggested this because I just found it so rich and disturbing and like really hard to watch the way that the film like slows like manipulates time so that certain moments are slowed down or repeated or happen chronologically and then we see them happening as if like backward as if the moment's being undone Mm -hmm. and then redone that happens a few times and then obviously um, some of the things that the crowd says are activated by intertitles there's something so like legible about everything that's happening that is really, really frightening and uncomfortable. It just feels like something bad's about to happen the entire time. Well, it almost immediately starts happening. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like <laughs> when I, because I've read descriptions of the film before watching it, and the descriptions made it sound to me like it was going to sort of gradually mutate mm-hmm. into something violent. And instead, it's like the very first encounter, I think, that we see is with this man who is being violent in a different way but not unrelated that's like i want to sleep with you to pierce who says nothing and it's the combination of the silence and the facelessness seems so provoking to everybody who feels entitled to some kind of like revelation yeah or response it's his desire that seems to be like the thing that gets the trajectory going or something because then it's the other crowd who like correct him and are like that's a man and like the danger of being wrong about the true identity of this figure that is literally like wearing a metal mask <laughs> like it's like the annihilation Natalie Portman in like a dress <laughs> from Rainbow or something is just like I don't, there's so much anxiety just like shimmering on the surface of this film and like so much about visibility and like resistance to visibility that I found super interesting. I'm curious what it was like watching it because I I read stuff about how Coates um, used to go to Myrtle Beach like when she was growing up, like in the summers. Um, I grew up in Northern Virginia and I've been around similar kind of like beach culture, I would say, or like certain kinds of zones of contact where it's like lots of families, but then a lot of maybe people in costumes or people (laughs) where it feels dangerous, but family friendly somehow at the same time. What was it like watching this film at MoMA? Was there anything to encountering it in this like, I don't know, like elite New York, like, you know, art? context i'm curious like i don't know what kind of noises the audience made and what it was like watching this kind of black mirror of south carolina yeah i think my expectations were framed by the fact that it was at moma i mean i think i understood the program to be 
like short DIY, like handmade films. And that can mean a million different things. And so this one stood out because it was hard to classify. There's really no narrative to it or the narrative is sort of spontaneous. Whereas like Mm -hmm. all the other films seem to have a clear like beginning kind of Mm -hmm. middle and end. And this one felt, even at the end of it, it felt endless Mm -hmm. and it felt like pressing. And I was wondering like what other people were sort of taking from it because I immediately was taking the trans angle from it. And during the Q&A, I don't remember anyone necessarily saying the word trans at all. And so it seemed like, I don't know, it just felt so obvious to me. And so I felt that that was a bit strange. But I mean, there was talk obviously of like violence and like violence against women and like obviously misogyny and like precarity of, you know, being a like a woman alone walking through the street. And there were a lot of discussions too about like, what are the, what is like the ethical move on on the camera sort of woman's part in terms Mm -hmm. of, do we intervene? Do we continue rolling? Mm. What do we make of that sort of decision to keep it sort of rolling? Mm. I was also really struck in my viewing and then in my subsequent viewings of this like editing trick of like every time, I think the first sort of, huge impact that we get is like a water bottle being thrown at yeah. her body she and like throws the water from the yeah <laughs> and so whenever there's like an object or like hands being put on her the like film like glitches in this mm-hmm. really interesting way mm-hmm. and then there's like a re like a rewind, sort of yeah. a rewinds and i think it was you no know, it was just like it really expands to me sort of like the parameter of of the assaults where mm-hmm. like the film is edited in such a way as to appear like almost like being jolted in tandem with mm-hmm. her jolting body when it's sort of attacked. And so mm-hmm. like our orientation feels impacted by like the thrown objects trajectory and con- con- collision. Mm-hmm. And that happens again when she's like literally shoved to the ground. And I think that yeah. was sort of a moment where I thought maybe that would rupture kind of like the robotic repetitive kind of performance and the dancing mm-hmm. that was happening mm-hmm. because for like this really gruesome long drawn out moment, she's just sort of on the ground in this fetal position. Just motionless. Yeah. It's so crazy because then the mob just encircles her and she's mm-hmm. sort of like in the center <laughs> of this sort of piece. And there's sort of like a mini stage that is created just by the positionality of everyone. Um, but then she stands up and just continues sort of the performance oh. um, and then everyone disperses. And so there's mm-hmm. like there's this weird, uh, I guess not weird, but like there's this really interesting power that is sort of being enacted in that space as well, where mm-hmm. one body has the power to disrupt all or to sort of send this mob into a frenzy, depending Mm -hmm. on whether or not the body chooses to remain still or moves again. It's like orchestrating kind of this, Mm -hmm. this, uh, this like street, like choreography. I hesitate to say that it's beautiful because it's not, it's so ugly, but it's also just like in that like transaction, it's like the, the public also has to sort of, bestow that power upon her as well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so they're at once sort of like attracted kind of like moths to a flame and then also like fear (laughs) like Mm -hmm. feel this like intense fear that sends them scattering in all directions and there really is no sort of like tidy resolution either it's just kind Mm -hmm. of it just sort of we stop filming Mm -hmm. or the crowd gets bored or i don't really know sort of like what continued beyond that point Mm -hmm. but like there's like blood that we see like on yeah, the knees the and like the, knee, yeah. the shoes are off, you know, it's like, but we almost end kind of in the same place that we begin, which is sort of like the entrance into kind of that Myrtle Beach main street area. Mm-hmm. And it's like a before and after sort of juxtaposition, which is just so insane. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think something does change when she stands back up and doesn't seem to be destroyed by this assault that happens in the sort of like the latter like third of the film and i love when she like smacks her heels together yeah, after taking like them off too. um like a sound i so associate with like strippers and um mm. like a kind of I don't really know how to put this like a it was pretty aggressive clacking it's clacking exactly it's like a seductive gesture that's also a little bit menacing there's just so much like energy in that and in her refusal to unmask. The second film that we're talking about today, it's also circling 
this idea of people's curiosity about true identity or a fantasy of like stable, unchanging, verifiable identity. It's interesting that in No Ordinary Man, which is about a jazz musician and band leader, Billy Tipton, who lived as a man and was then like discovered, at least this is the narrative that the film begins with, kind of discovered to have been assigned female at birth when he passed away, which was 1989. So a lot of the film is kind of pretty straight ahead, like Talking Heads documentary with various trans scholars, writers, performers about Tipton's story and legacy and a sort of lighter side of the desire to uncover or recover lost history um, Mm -hmm. and sort of like repopulate a trans archive so that there's a sense of like not being solely in the present, but having a living ongoing past as well. So it's interesting to have the two films both be sort of working on this idea of both like good and bad reasons, I guess, to motivate this desire for knowledge of the other, I guess, or like knowledge of one another, even though the feelings or the affects of the films are so totally different. There's no question. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> well, did we all watch them? Like I, I watched them back to back, which was in the wrong order, uh, unfortunately. But why, why do you think it's the wrong order? <laughs> yeah. Well, just because of, uh, I, I finished it about five minutes before we hopped on here, American Reflex. So just, uh, you know, you want some time to, for me anyway, I want some time to process like what, what I just saw and what, you know, mm-hmm. so I brought all my, my feelings onto the podcast, but yeah, it was, it was just like, oh man, oh, that was brutal. And now let's go talk about it really quick. So I'm still processing it as we speak and, and it's helpful to listen to you guys talk about it. And also, yeah, saw the Ordinary Man today as well. And I thought that, I'd never even actually heard of that film until Spencer suggested it, but uh, I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was really good and really well done and I think I was telling Veronica before we had started that um, talking heads documentaries can be, you know, hit or miss, uh, fairly boilerplate at times. But I think that the the people that they chose to have on specifically, I mean, they, they were just like a murderer's row of like really intelligent people talking really intelligently uh, about Billy Tipton. And then to kind of juxtapose that with Billy Tipton Jr., mm. I, I just thought it was a really interesting kind of narrative where I didn't see it coming. I thought I thought that he was just going to be like... This like, yeah, and here's this guy who doesn't really get it. But the way that they kind of put that whole story together where I I, I didn't see that they were all going to come to his house and basically be like, hey, your dad was a hero to all of us and Mm -hmm. really just kind of give him something back when he's like, I didn't even know that any of this community existed. I didn't know that, you know, Mm -hmm. I know I'm I'm jumping ahead to the end there, but which we used to do all the time, by the way, (sighs) we haven't done that in a while. But yeah, I just I just thought it was a really good kind of I was like, oh, how are they going to make this? more than just kind of a standard Talking Heads biopic of Billy Tipton, because there is no actual footage of Billy Tipton on video anywhere. Like, we do Mm -hmm. get to hear the voice on, I don't know what those are, like uh, tape recordings to like a grandparent or a relative or something. Mm -hmm. So you get those, but there's just a bunch of archival photos, and even those a few times start to repeat. So there's no interiority uh, granted to Billy at all in terms of like, we don't know the feelings uh, the motivations, the desires mm-hmm. of why live your life like this or why not live it, you know, the decisions that were made, all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. to be able to put together this compelling of a film, I think, without really ever knowing, I mean, it doesn't resolve a mystery. It doesn't, there's mm-hmm. no big reveal. It's uh, instead becomes this, I mean, homage is the wrong word, but it just, it becomes a piece of like, this person lived an amazing life at a time when, as they say at the end, like there was just access and resources to nothing. Like I forget the line that they use, but if you wanted to live like a man, you kind of just had to, uh, they said something like, go with what you've got, or there, there was some mm-hmm. some colloquial phrase like that. And you realize like, oh my goodness, that was, you know, for thousands of years, that's been what trans people have had to do if, if they wanted to pass in any kind of way. And so to have someone live their entire life that way, I don't know. There, there was, a, again, a lot to unpack. But yeah, none of the awfulness of, or the awful like pit in your stomach of the, uh, the American reflex experience, so... Every month on Brightwall Dark Room, we belly up with critics, artists, and contributors to speak from the heart about film, which got us thinking, what if we had a space like that every day of the week? A space where artists can go off script on love for their craft. Introducing Gallery, a new cinema club built by today's most celebrated filmmakers. 
helmed by Indian Paintbrush, the folks who brought you the Grand Budapest Hotel and the upcoming Asteroid City, Gallery combines personal film collections, thoughtful essays, and live experiences into a single destination. Built by artists as a response and alternative to binge culture, Gallery is not a streaming service. It's all human, no algorithm. A communal cinema experience that celebrates the nuances so often missing in today's industry. And Brightwell Darkroom listeners are invited to receive early access before its official public launch. Gallery is shaped by many filmmakers that we love here at Brightwell Darkroom, including Mike Mills, Karen Kusama, Ed Lockman, Taylor Russell, Ethan Hawke, and Maggie Gyllenhaal. Members will enjoy access to these artists' hand-picked film libraries, as well as original videos, audio stories, in-depth articles, and exclusive live events. Because, like Brightwell Dark Room, Gallery is a community that believes movies are better experienced together. To join the club, go to www.join.gallery.com slash BWDR. That's G-A-L-E-R-I-E dot com slash BWDR. Spencer, when did you first see the film? Like four days ago. <laughs> awesome. Like four days ago. Wait, you suggested it more than four days ago. <laughs> I know. You rolled the dice. I know. I did roll the dice. Yeah, I was. I, I wanted to watch something that I'd sort of never seen before, mm. and this was sort of on, like you said, the the Criterion lineup. And I'm a sucker for musician biopics. Mm. So yeah, I thought, why not give it a spin? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's this interesting. I don't know if I would call it like a trope but this I've, I feel like I've seen it a lot in recent years this like self-reflexive move of auditioning people to yeah to to like play a sort of un like a like the role of the subject in like mm-hmm. an unspecified project that mm-hmm. we may never see <laughs> I think the first time I sort of locked in on that was I think it's Kitty Green's like casting Jean Benet was like the first one that oh. I remember sort of doing <laughs> that Big nod from Veronica. Yep. <laughs> and then there was like a Bisbee 17 that did it. And then there was Framing Agnes, which is another trans documentary that did the same thing. Although I guess in Framing Agnes, they're not auditioning for a role, but they are sort of acting as sort of the subjects. Mm-hmm. And then this one, which I think is like an interesting documentary move to sort of deviate away from sort of the standard talking heads format. I think it's like a very interesting mm-hmm. way to see people work through their relationship with mm-hmm. the character. Yeah, that was fascinating. Via like embodiment. And mm-hmm. I think for this film, it's particularly useful in just allowing more trans people to sort of have the floor to speak about mm-hmm. exactly. this figure. Yeah. Um, and so it, it creates kind of a mini community around kind of the central subject in a way that skirts kind of the standard interview format, mm-hmm. which I, I do appreciate. Um, I do find that a strict Talking Heads documentary can be a bit monotonous. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and so I do like watching people try to... I also like observing kind of like who is up for the role because there mm-hmm. are some interesting choices or some interesting <laughs> sort of people that are being auditioned for like this very real person. Mm-hmm. And so I like the variedness of perspective that is being brought to the table about this person, the speculation about this person and mm-hmm. how across this like varied pool of auditioners the different ways that this figure has impacted their transition journey in some sense or Mm -hmm. their notion of trans history Mm -hmm. or even just their notion of like community and so I, I like the diversity of the pool in the sense that it's not necessarily they're not trying to find someone to be like a carbon copy of of this figure but more so what is their essence I guess Mm -hmm. yeah which I think is sort of like the new, I think the new trend in, in biopics too of like, we're not trying to sort of create, you know, a, a, a person that looks like the the subject, but more so how do they capture the essence? And I'm thinking mm-hmm. of like Kirsten Stewart and, and Spencer. Um, I was going to say, are going to say the name of the movie? <laughs> yeah, Spencer. <laughs> did you write about that for, for Brightwell Darkroom? I did. You I did. did. <laughs> I do remember this. Yeah, sort of like, I don't know. I wonder if it's like this move of like, we understand in 2023 that, you know, we can't necessarily like raise the dead. And so everything that we do to essentially give them sort of the celluloid life is 
always going to be an approximation and is always mm-hmm. going to be slippery mm-hmm. and there's always going to be slippage. And I think certain films are starting to lean into that idea a bit more, which I enjoy a lot. I do like that, yeah. I do like that. I, obviously within limits, of course. Um, <laughs> there, are, there are limits to that trick, but avoiding the Bohemian Rhapsody of it all. <laughs> and I think, uh, I mean, as someone who has not acted since playing Abe Lincoln in a fourth grade play, I'm always just really, really fascinated to watch literally actors in real time acting like as like i don't know how to say the guy's name marquis went so when the i think they're the producer I'm, I'm not sure who all was who in the room but the producers or the casting directors whatever and they're saying okay so this is what's happening here and then he's like okay and then he'll external processor which is always helpful in movies uh so then he just kind of walks through like and you can like literally see him taking it in. Mm. Okay, this is what's going on. This is what's going on. And then boom, there's a performance like that. And I, for me, that's uh, just always a magic trick because I have no idea how actors do what they do. And so I, there was just a lot of that too. And you also saw each character took somewhat similar information that they would be given and then would translate into a performance that was, you know, different and the, the words that they would emphasize or the, the manner. I mean, it was, yeah, it was really fascinating and gets to that piece, which is like, we're never far from performance in the ways that we navigate our bodies in the world. Just from C. Riley Snorton, who's one of my very favorite interview subjects in the film. I just wanted to hear more about Chad's role as Abraham Lincoln. Uh, they've said iconic has been some of the, you know, they said changes changes our understanding of this president. Uh, they said uh, new short king has arrived. <laughs> wow! And they said, well, "Why is that beard look so fake on this little ten year old?" But I nailed it. I only had like three or four lines. It was like I was more there to like lend gravitas to this fourth grade Abraham Lincoln performance. So I, I feel like I pulled it off. But then I was like, I'm going out on top. And that was the end of my acting career. Did they do the like murder scene? No, we, we did not have the... Uh... Did they do like a, <laughs> you're in the theater. <laughs> no, it was... You're watching a play. Just cut to black. I believe, if you can believe, we did not cover the assassination uh, in that. <laughs> we instead went with the Emancipation Proclamation. So. Did you have to memorize that? Yes. And I had to... I mean, it's really... This is a very fascinating story. Is that I... <laughs> Had to memorize the lines. I'm a famous uh, procrastinator, still am. And so I had not had the lines memorized, but the big performance. The fifth graders were going to come into the classroom. A lot of pressure was on. And so I faked sick the day before so that I could stay, go to my dad's office. He was a teacher. I went into his little, wherever teachers grade their papers and offices in the room, and then memorized all the lines in one day there. And then gave again what they're saying was an iconic performance the next day. Wow. Eli, please keep that all in. (laughs) That's amazing. I love... (laughs) I do like watching actors act is my real point. Because I I, I just think if you can memorize lines and put a beard on, that's acting in my my world. But uh, I mean, artists, yeah, they're great. (laughs) I was having a big nod earlier because I was also like really thinking about um, casting John Bonet, which I loved. Mm And I think it's just kind of a thing that I like in movies and TV when performance, like something that is ostensibly super false, is this container for something authentic to like jump out or be discovered or revealed. So like in any kind of teen drama, when like characters are performing in a play and those are their real feelings coming out or something <laughs> like, you know, undercover cops or something doing the same sort Wait, of like what? a propaganda romance, you know, I have that on my bingo board today. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And this was really doing that. And I think also just was really moving insofar as it imagines this like possible continuity of feeling between this figure that is sort of like lost to time. And as Chad was saying, like not super archived in terms of like there's no really moving nothing, image yeah. of Tipton. But there is all this music. No journals. Um, there's Tipton singing, which I thought was really fantastic to hear. But in lieu of all that, allowing some kind of compassionate continuity to exist anyway, based on an idea of shared experience or of like genealogical experience, I thought was really beautiful. And actually the film in its kind of obsession with mediation seems pretty critical of like a more straightforward take on biography. You know, I Mm -hmm. loved how much of the film was devoted to critiquing and undermining what sounds like, I mean, I haven't read the book. It came out in 1998. Yeah. Um, Diane Middlebrook suits me. me. 
Yeah. And just moving from a passing comment that I think the actor Marquise makes about Diane Middlebrook to just like a full on kind of segment about the development of the book and how much Tipton's widow was hurt by the sort of... Oh, they played the phone call audio stuff. Yeah, the narrativization of that. So I thought that kind of suspicion of straightforward biography as not as objective as it seems was totally interesting too. Yeah. There's that turning point in Billy Tipton's life when I think he was offered a chance to do the... Uh, like go on tour no a residency in vegas it was some big thing reno gonna, i think reno yeah okay. it was gonna like open for liberace stuff like that and then instead said nope i'm done with music you know most people would be like oh this is this that's what you want you want that gig yeah. you know then you're, you're set for life like celine dion or whatever instead he chooses to take a really small thing in a place that most people outside of washington call spokane but it's just mm-hmm. called spokane so to choose to say, I'm going to go live in Spokane, raise a family there, give up music entirely, and continue to live out my life this way. Uh, so that was an interesting piece of it. And then also Billy Tipton Jr. I was really impressed with uh, some of his journey in the film because it wasn't, I mean, it sounds like the journey happened pretty quick when he was younger, but mm-hmm. while he was going through really, a, I mean, imagine your life being <laughs> one thing you know, one month and the next month you're on Oprah Winfrey and everything else being grilled about, did you know your dad was a woman and all this stuff? Handled it really well for however, I could not tell how old he was supposed to be back then. <laughs> but, you know, maybe early 20s. But he, you know, that that line near the end when he's like, I, you know, I had that moment, I was like, whoa, okay, what just happened? But then like immediately said like, oh, but this doesn't change anything. I still, this is still the same person. You know, I love this person, you know. Really remarkably open-minded. Uh, I just really liked that he was in there. And I, and I couldn't figure out, had the other two children died or the, their faces oh, were blurred know. in the pictures? And, and at the end, um, I know the director or producer, one of them asked him off camera, you know, how does it feel to be the only person left alive with this story? So I was like, oh, what happened? Mm-hmm. There was three, three adopted kids, so... Yeah, that moment, like the kind of crossroads of life that you're talking about where Tipton turns down this like pretty, like the biggest job offer yet, basically, and decides to sort of like double down on private life and adopt the kids. That does remind me a little of what we see in American Reflex in terms of just the danger of like living a public life, like a Mm. visible life. And it's something that a lot of the participants in the film talk about from the other angle, which is like the significance of being visible, like the significance of having visible figures to look to or look back to um, and how meaningful that is. And that obviously seems to be like pretty potent for Billy Jr. at the end of the film. But there is a sense they don't really like explore it that explicitly, but there is a sense of like a, a tremendous sacrifice that was represented by that choice in a sense. I mean, not to say that like, having a a tight, happy family is a tremendous sacrifice. But (laughs) just to pursue, to know that there is a real possibility of harm from just doing the thing that you're sort of training to do and practicing doing your whole life, I think there's a sadness to that, definitely. Womp womp. (laughs) Spencer shook her head, but this is uh, not a visual medium. I was just nodding. I was just like... (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I think if there's one thing that I wish maybe the film kind of lingered more on was just the the musical aspect of things. Mm-hmm. I think it was about rights and clearances. I bet. Regardless, <laughs> I don't know because <laughs> there was a, there was no like jazz standards in the whole thing that I could hear. Yeah, I don't know. I wish even just more like biographical information about mm-hmm. like his relationship to music mm-hmm. and other than just being good at it, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I looked at him and played like five instruments. Like, he was a crazy good musician. It wasn't. Yeah. And yeah. so there's like this, like what does music offer sort of this person mm-hmm. as a medium or as like a way to t- storytell, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there was that one person that talked about it. I think the person I quoted earlier, um, talked about and i thought they were going to go more but it stopped right there yeah it's like uh, one when they talked about the improvisation like right. yeah hey, there's this jazz and this improvisation and then they went to this genders kind of improv like, yeah yeah like, we got <laughs> it <Yep>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. i see what you're doing yeah last call what does that mean okay so typically we end every episode by asking guests to share like a quick staff recommendation so this can be whatever you like just something that you would recommend maybe like a recent fave and spencer is a movie watching machine like letterbox numbers puts all of ours to shame like three four thousand up there wow so i know there's a lot to choose from 
give us a title. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. I saw the <laughs> Spider-Verse movie yesterday and I really <laughs> I liked it. I really Good. liked I really Everyone enjoyed it. it. I also just saw Sanctuary the other day and that was very fun. Is it? It was fun. It was fun. Yeah. It was fun. I also saw The Little Mermaid, <laughs> but that was fine. <laughs> I wasn't the target audience for you the Little Mermaid. You can cuss on this podcast, we said. <laughs> yes, there's been a lot. I always thought we are going to have way more swearing on this one. Yeah. So those are my big three. I also saw Fast <laughs> X, which was not good. Oh, is that the Fast and the Furious one? Yeah. It was not good. And then there was like a jump scare cameo at the end. Whoa. I guess I've also, I'm guilty of not having seen every single Fast and the Furious movie. There's simply too many of them. I'm guilty of having seen zero of them proudly. Same. So. Same. <laughs> right. But fuck, and I agree. Yeah. I guess like, and maybe we can cut this or maybe we can leave it in, but I am tired <laughs> of the cultural lie that Gal Gadot is a charismatic screen presence. <laughs> is she in the Fast and the Furious movies? She's in Fast X for like a second and so i thought that they were like trying to set up gal gadot as being like the next sort of big character that is going to continue the franchise and i was like so bummed out because i was like of all the interesting people gal gadot (laughs) enough champagne to fill the nile um i will be watching her in the cleopatra movie a biopic i didn't even know about that oh (laughs) she's an executive producer and so good i love my biopics you know me she gave it to herself. Oh, no. I don't know if that's going to be yet another example of a biopic that tries to do the slippage of, like, mm-hmm. she's not really Cleopatra. <laughs> like, wink. <laughs> In- lest we forget, this is a movie star. <laughs> I just needed to get that off of my chest. I totally support that. I'm a on-record hater of the mm-hmm. Wonder Woman movies and find her just appalling. <laughs> yeah, that's the only one I've seen. I saw the first Wonder Woman movie several years ago, and that's it. And I was A like, movie oh. that is basically about being more than beautiful, where all the interactions are characters finding her very beautiful. <laughs> it's shocking. Should we have a Gal Gadot issue? Yes. Oh, that's a great idea. But she hasn't. I don't think she's been in uh, movies, has she? Yeah, she has. I bet she has. We we could we could imagine what if she was in these movies? Like, what if she was in Die Hard? We'll have to do some deep cut. Yeah. yeah. Gaga as Princess Diana. Yeah. Like. Oh my god. Not to biopic it, but I I think it's actually Gal Gadot, <laughs> isn't it? Oh no. I thought it was Gadot. Wow. I I've that, always honestly that makes it, it worse Godot because. Waiting because for Godot. I thought it, yeah, like I thought it was pronounced in a French way, but um, she's Israeli and I think it's Godot. Waiting for Godot. Waiting hey. for Godot is to the do name some of the issue. <laughs> yes, there we go. <laughs> Waiting for Godot to make more movies. Waiting for Godot to be good. <laughs> to be good. Well, Spencer, I can't wait for the second Brightwall <laughs> issue that it sounds like you will be curating for our pleasure. The next time you drop some film festival coverage, I know what's coming next. Yeah, another issue. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. But yeah, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having it's, me. It's been a blast. Yeah, and for picking the movies, curating the issues. Like, uh, yeah, we owe you a lot this month. Do we leave questions to leave listeners? I don't know. I think that's a funny question. I kind of just want to be, I'm just like, are you trans? <laughs> like, do you think you might have some gender dysphoria that you need to work through? Should you see a therapist? Should you talk to someone about your gender? And that those are the questions that I want to leave. And that's it. <laughs> that's it. I love it. It's like a hotline ad or something. <laughs> Trying to force transition our, our listener base. <laughs> Spencer, thank you so much for joining us. Where can we find you online? You can find me on my Instagram um, at Spencer Free. This was like a high school at that I thought was cool at the time. All one word. All one word. <laughs> Same thing goes for my Twitter, which I have wondered about that forever. Okay. It's at Burrito Thief, but Thief is spelled wrong. We switched the E and the I so that it's not a real word. So it's not burrito the if? No, it's... I've never considered that it might be the if, but you just blew my mind. I <laughs> Burrito the F. <laughs> burrito the F. No, it's thief, but it's spelled wrong because the correct spelling... And I need people to know this. I know how to spell thief. 
I know how to spell it, but it was taken. The other at was taken. So I had to do some improvising. So you had to thief the burrito thief. I had to thief the burrito thief. Some improv. Yeah. (laughs) And I am a burrito thief. I have stolen (laughs) many a frozen burrito from a supermarket. What's the statute of limitations on that? But also, like, there's no good Mexican spot in Western New York City. People will have tried to convince me otherwise. And time and time again, they're wrong. It does. It's simply not happening. I feel like, I, as a Mexican person, in a way, they're stealing something from me. <laughs> <laughs> Patience, cultural ties, heritage. That's great. There's a lot of baggage behind my Twitter at. Directly from Burrito the If's mouth. Yeah, who's the if now? I love yeah, that. Who's the if now? America. <laughs> Big questions. The gringos, yeah. Uh, I think that's a wrap. Yeah. That's a burrito. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a burrito wrap. I think it'd be funny if I just dropped my email, but I'm not going to do that. But <laughs> can that'd be funny. You, online? you can also find my Rate My Professor. Also, <laughs> you can... No one's ever plugged that. That's actually really good. We've had so many teachers here, yeah. I'm also on Tinder, Bumble, <laughs> Hinge, all under my government name. <laughs> Perfect. We got to get the bright wall dating pool <laughs> going. Raya? No, I'm kidding. I'm not on Raya. <laughs> Yet. What's Raya? I don't even know what Raya is. It's like the celebrity dating app. Oh, I should. You have to be invited. Do they let founders on there? Do they let actors who played Abraham Lincoln <laughs> like on there? Like founding fathers? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Like, like a, Abraham Lincoln. I was like, was like magazine entendre. founder? Or yeah. like Abraham or Lincoln? Or like Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Yeah. You, guys, you guys know he's not one of the founding fathers, right? <laughs> well, it, we're not getting you on, Raya. Okay. <laughs> to read this month's issue, all about trans cinema, curated by our special guest today, visit us at brightwalldarkroom.com. You can also find us on Twitter at BWDR and at the BWDR podcast. If you like what you're hearing, you can subscribe to the podcast. You can share the podcast. We would love if you would raise our rating, which I think has been at a standstill 4.7 for just weeks now, despite our growing numbers in Sweden and Jamaica. So it would be really, really (laughs) helpful to get some five stars going. Um, And then a review. We love to read them. This episode is sponsored by Gallery, a new kind of film club. Listeners can sign up for early access at join.gallery.com slash BWDR. Our theme music is composed by Chad Perman. This podcast is produced and edited by Eli Sands. Bye. 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 Chad, is your mic wire, um, I'm getting some bumps oh, here and there. Yeah, I did, I did not route it the right way. Hold on. Sorry, Spencer, I bump everything. And it's always a problem. A fish bumped me out of the water with a its nose. A fish bumped me out of the water with its nose. What? <laughs> Eli and I were talking about I think you should leave. So. Oh, I have not seen the latest season or the two seasons before it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the entire thing, right? Yeah. Even with Fran, because Fran's big, big time fan. Fran is big. Fran tried to make me watch a couple of them, and it's just, it's just not for me. I don't know. Okay. It's giving like college improv, and <laughs> and it's just not giving for me. But people that love it are allowed to love it, and I'm so happy that they found a show for them. I love that. So inclusive. Yeah, it's just, it's beautiful that there's a show for everyone.